Well, what a privilege to be able to go back in the imagination of the mind and the time machine that God has given us to read the words and to be transported with fresh faith to the actions and the words of Jesus of Nazareth. Open up your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark. As I've said, if Romans was the most important book ever written, then Jesus is the most important person who ever lived. And the Gospel of Mark is our opportunity to be listening to the words of the apostles as they relate to us the experiences that they had. And that is a tremendous privilege. Now, one of our key verses here at the beginning of our study has been 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. As we are told the story of Jesus, we sang earlier, tell me the story of Jesus. We want to hear the story of Jesus because we want to, with faces unveiled, to behold the glory of the Lord. And here, this unveiled face is referring back to Moses who had a veil before his face because the people were being shielded from seeing the afterglow of the glory of God that was still on the shining face of Moses after he came down from talking with God on the mountain. But now that veil is removed and that we as New Covenant Christians have the privilege of beholding the glory of the Lord without anything blocking, without anything diminishing, without anything hiding the glory that is in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, studying through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Good preaching doesn't present novel ideas, but it presents old ideas. But it presents the old ideas with fresh faith, with fresh joy, fresh wisdom. So let's pray that God will freshen our hearts and minds to be able to hear the old, old story with new eyes and new ears. Bow your heads with me. Lord God, as we have begun to teach week after week through this amazing gospel, we pray that this morning you will strengthen us, that you will help us, that you will enliven me by your Spirit, help us stand in dire need of the Spirit's work this morning. We are like the grass in the field, without the light of Jesus Christ, without the water of your Holy Spirit, we dry up and wither. We are like a sail on a sailboat that without the wind of God's Spirit pushing into us, we are completely useless and powerless. And so, Lord God, we come to you this morning in great dependence upon you. And yet, in that humility, we have great confidence because you are faithful. And whenever we confess to you our need, you are more than happy to meet that need. And so, Lord God, give us fresh eyes to be able to behold with the eyes of the soul, the glory of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. All right, so we are in the Gospel of Mark. We covered the first 15 verses of the Gospel last week, and today we're going to cover the rest of chapter 1, which is a relatively long chapter. And what Mark chapter 1 is going to do for us, it's going to show us a day in the life of Jesus' Galilean ministry. So the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Mark, In the first half of Mark's gospel, he really focuses on the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ, going from village to village, town to town, and sharing in their synagogues, preaching the message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, believe in the good news, and then having 
the miracles that accompany his work. We have four or five miracles here in these opening chapters, kind of setting the stage for how it came to be that Jesus was such a phenomena in the first century towns and villages of Galilee so that he couldn't even enter into a town with people knowing that he was coming in because the crowds would just cause such a havoc and there was so much buzz that was going on in the community. But as we look into Mark chapter 1 this week, we're going to see that the buzz around Jesus, this phenomenal coming that he had on the scene, was actually somewhat detrimental to his purpose. And that all of the excitement that was building among the people was not around the most important thing, the real reason that Jesus Christ had come. Yes, Jesus Christ performed many healings. He cast out many demons. But that was not the point. That was not why he came. He came in order to teach. And we're going to see that. The key verses here in our chapter today, chapter 1, verse 22. Take a look at that in your Bibles. Mark 1.22 says, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then look also at verse 27. He says, They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And then you come down and look in verse 38. And you see that Jesus said, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The ministry of Jesus Christ as a preacher, he came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The ministry of Jesus Christ as a teacher, that is the main purpose of his first coming as far as his actual day-to-day ministry in Galilee and in other parts of Israel. That's our focus. And that the authority that Christ demonstrates in his miracles are there just to get our attention to listen to what he has to teach, to what he has to say. Now, as you're going to find out in the opening chapters of Mark's Gospel, he doesn't record a large chunk of Jesus' teaching like Matthew does. When you get into the Gospel of Matthew, right at the very beginning, right after Jesus begins his ministry, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters of Jesus' teaching. But you don't have that in the Gospel of Mark. All you've got are summary statements that Jesus was teaching and that he was amazing the people with his teaching. And so you're going to have to find the teaching elsewhere. But Mark's purpose for us this morning is just to get our attention and to show us how important it is that we listen to what Jesus Christ came to teach. That's the big idea. So let's go ahead and jump into the text here. And it starts there in verse 16. Follow along. I'll read Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here, the first part of our outline this morning is that Jesus is calling the disciples. And that he's calling four men who were fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, 
and John, some of the most well-known of the disciples, three of whom form the inner circle of Jesus' disciple group, Peter, James, and John. This is the beginning of Jesus Christ discipling those who would continue his work after him. So we find out here that immediately in the story of Jesus, that he is not going to be alone, but that he deliberately chooses disciples that he is going to teach to do what he does. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is a student who is learning to do what the master does. It's kind of like an apprenticeship. And you would be chosen for an apprenticeship to be able to learn the trade of the master craftsman. Well, the master craftsman here is a fisher of men, and he is going to train others to be fishers of men as well. And when these four Simon, Andrew, James, and John hear Jesus' call to be disciples of him. They immediately follow that and leave everything behind. The authority of Jesus Christ, it's remarkable that at a word, these men give up everything to follow him. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, but you can read about it in the Gospel of John, that this was not the first meeting that these men had with Jesus. And it wasn't the first opportunity that they had to learn that he was the Lamb of God. Because in John chapter 1, we find out that John the Baptist actually pointed a number of these men to Jesus in order to let them know that this was the one that he was talking about who was coming after John, but who was mightier. And so these men already knew about Jesus. In fact, it seems from the biblical record that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were actually cousins of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's, there's knowledge, there's family relationship. But when it came time for Jesus to begin his public ministry in Galilee, when he called these men to follow, they immediately responded. Now, it was not normal practice among rabbis. We're talking about how Jesus was a teacher. Uh, in that day in Israel, teachers were called rabbis. It was not normal practice among the rabbis for the teacher to choose his disciples in this manner. Rather, students would apply to the school of the rabbi and they would come and be a part of his school, very similar to how schools are run today. So a rabbi would have his own school. If you wanted to get in, you would apply to that school. And then you'd become a student in that class. But Jesus didn't have a school. He didn't have a class. He just called and chose people to come follow with him. And they traveled with him throughout his whole ministry. Also, it's important for us to take note here that when Jesus calls his first disciples, he does not call them to follow Torah he does not call them to follow the school of thinking that he is a part of because there is no school of thinking that he is a part of. He's new on the scene. There's no one that's ever been here teaching like he has taught before. And so even though Jesus has the highest respect for the Old Testament, he recognizes that the Old Testament points to him and that they are not called to follow Moses, but that the greater than Moses prophet is now on the scene, and so he asked them to follow him. And this is unusual. It's not something that would have been normal practice, but the rabbis who existed in that time would have called their students to follow Torah. 
to follow Moses, to follow the traditions of the elders. But Jesus says, no, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So this is remarkable in a number of ways and extraordinary. Now, as we move on then into verses 21 through 34, we see that Jesus' ministry begins in Capernaum. Now, we'd already been made aware that Jesus had come into Galilee after John was arrested. That was last week when we looked at verse 14. After John's arrest, which was probably about six months after the baptism of Jesus, then Jesus comes back into Galilee after having spent some time in Judah and Jerusalem that you can read about in Mark's Gospel. But when he came into Galilee to begin his ministry there, he is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And so I thought I'd show you a picture this morning of the beautiful scenery that is there around the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have probably been there. The Sea of Galilee is a very picturesque place. I haven't been there, but this picture gives me some idea of what it looks like. The Sea of Galilee actually had a number of names, and more technically, it's a lake. It's not a sea. It's a freshwater lake, and so it was called the Lake of Gennesaret. It was also called the Sea of Kinnereth, or the Sea of Tiberias became its name at the end of the first century. It was more commonly called the Sea of Tiberias. It's 13 miles long, so a pretty big lake there, 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, and the most interesting thing about the lake is that it's 690 feet below sea level. So this is the lowest lake aside from the Dead Sea, because the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea are all located in the same rift valley, a geological fissure forming the longest and the deepest crack in the Earth's crust. So to be below sea level, there's got to be a crack in the earth's crust because that's the normal level of things. And, and so this is a, a very low place on the earth as far as the topography goes. And the lake here is full of all kinds of great fish and villages that had popped up on every side of the lake in the first century. And the fishing there was very productive. Not only did it meet needs in Israel and in Galilee, but they also exported fish all over the Roman Empire. Now, when we tend to think of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee in that area, we think back to some of the videos that we've seen, Jesus movies, and there's just like one or two little shacks along the seashore, and, and it's very barren, and there's nothing there, because that's mostly the way it looks today. But back then, they had a lot of people that were living on the Sea of Galilee. They had a lot of fishing villages, and these villages weren't just five shacks with a few fishermen living in there. But no, Capernaum was a good-sized village, probably had between ten and 15,000 people, living in Capernaum at this time. So you have to change your imagination a little bit from what the movies have shown you and think back to what it was like then. And we have some good information on that from historical accounts. Also from archaeology, as I'll show you some of the archaeological findings that we have discovered just in recent times. Now, the miracles that Jesus performs in Capernaum the first one takes place in the synagogue there in Capernaum. Now let me show you where Capernaum is on the map here. Well, I guess my first slide is of the fishing boat. So as Jesus came along and called his disciples, we find that James and John were in the boat with their father. And a remarkable discovery you see here in 1986, not that long ago, I was 11 years old when this was discovered, 
that the drought in Palestine it had caused the shoreline to recede several meters, and then they were able to discover this first century fishing boat that is very likely the type of boat that James and John were in at that time. And of course, you can never identify this as their boat. There were a lot of fishermen, but pretty exciting to have this discovered at the capacity of 15. So Jesus with his 12 disciples could fit on this boat and normally crewed by five fishermen that would go out and throw their net and then have room in the boat for the haul of fish that they would go and bring into shore. And this gave us a lot of insight into what the scriptures are talking about when we have Jesus and his disciples and all of their activity there on the Sea of Galilee. You see, it's 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet deep. So that's, that's you know, pretty deep. This was the first one that was discovered and most likely built between 100 B.C. and 180, right there uh, in the time of Christ. So pretty exciting find there. All right. And then I wanted you to see this scripture also where Jesus not only called his disciples to be fishers of men, but then he used the parable of fishing to illustrate there in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 and following. And you can jot down that reference and take a look at that later. As Jesus called his disciples to follow him, then he immediately went into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is down here. Now, here's Jerusalem. So you see this is inverted from the other map. And so this is actually the north side here, whereas this is southern Israel, Judah and Jerusalem. And you see over here, Nazareth. And so this was where Jesus grew up as a boy in Nazareth. But he relocated when he began his ministry in Galilee, leaving his hometown and instead made his headquarters, Capernaum, here on the Sea of Galilee. This is where Peter, Andrew, James, and John were living and working. We know that from the Gospel of John that James and John were originally from Bethsaida, but they had probably relocated for a time to Capernaum for their business. And this gives you a good idea of this Jordan River Valley with the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and they even got the Mediterranean over here. It gives you a good aerial perspective of the Holy Land, and you get to see just how big the Sea of Galilee was and how many towns there were around it where Jesus ministered. And they would sail from one side to the other side. Over here is where he cast the demons out of Legion. And then you've got uh, Tiberias, which is where the Roman headquarters was in this area. You've got Magdala, where Mary was from, Mary Magdalene. You've got Chorazin and Bethsaida, which Jesus condemned for not believing in spite of all the miracles that he performed there. So this was the region that Jesus was ministering in during his Galilean ministry. Here you have an aerial shot of the ruins in Capernaum where you've got the church that is built on the site of what we believe was Peter's household and then the synagogue that was nearby and the ruins of that synagogue. And I'll show you some close-up pictures of Peter's house or the church that was built on Peter's house and the synagogue that we find here in Mark chapter 1. All right? So with that all in mind, that helps to transport us back to get an idea of, of what it would be like, this large, prosperous fishing village on this large sea and many towns around it that were also doing quite well and had a large number of people that Jesus could go into the synagogues and teach and preach in. And here is the 5th and 6th century synagogue 
It's not the synagogue that Jesus actually preached in, but underneath this synagogue, we have found ruins of the synagogue that Jesus preached in in Capernaum. Pretty cool. The archaeologists have discovered all of this. So let's go ahead and read the text then. Back in Mark chapter 1, pick it up in verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was what? He was teaching. Key word here in the Gospel of Mark, it's used over 30 times of Jesus that he was teaching. So we're constantly reminded that Jesus came to teach. This is what he sought to do. He was a teacher. And as he was teaching, we find in verse 23, they were astonished at what he was saying. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus casts out the unclean spirit here in verses 23 to 28 as he is teaching in the synagogue. Let me tell you a little bit about synagogues there in the first century. Now if you look into the history of the synagogue, we can trace its roots all the way back to the Babylonian captivity. Synagogues became important in Jewish life when the temple was destroyed and they no longer had the central place of worship, but instead they were scattered from their own land and you had many Jews living in Babylon and in other countries there in the ancient world. And so they wanted to carry on their teaching, they wanted to carry on their traditions and be faithful to the Lord, and so what they did was they formed synagogues. And the word synagogue it just means a gathering together. And so anywhere where you had 10 Jewish people, 10 Jewish men who were of age, you could form a Jewish synagogue. And so all throughout the ancient world, not only in the Holy Land itself, but also everywhere that Jews had been scattered in the dispersion, you would find Jewish synagogues, gatherings of Jewish people for the purpose of teaching, for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of settling community affairs. And in each synagogue you would have a ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue was the executive. He was the one who was in charge of making sure that everything functioned properly in the synagogue. But he wasn't the pastor of the synagogue. He wasn't the teacher like me in this, but he was more like the executive pastor who was managing and running everything. But the services in the synagogue were very democratic, that you could have any man who was approved by the president of the synagogue would be able to teach. And so Jesus is from Nazareth. He's known in this area. He wants to teach. And so the ruler of the synagogue gives him the opportunity to teach. But once Jesus starts teaching, everyone is amazed. They've never heard anyone teach the way that Jesus teaches. And Mark notes that. Matthew notes that. And all throughout the scriptures, we have people constantly being amazed at the way that Jesus Christ taught. What a great example for us. And as I said, if you want to read some of the teaching of Jesus and hear it with the ears of faith, then go to Matthew chapters 5 through 7 
And there God has given us a, a sermon from the Lord Jesus Christ where you could hear the kind of teaching he would have given here in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, in every village you had at least one synagogue. And here, this would have been a rather large synagogue. You've got 10,000 Jews living in Capernaum. You've got a lot of people there in the synagogue on Saturday. So don't think, you know, very small hut with a few people in there like we might see in the videos. This is a large structure. A lot of people can fit into it, as the archaeology shows. Now, visiting rabbis would often speak. And here Jesus speaks. But while he is speaking and amazing the people, it just so happens that there is a man in the congregation who has an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit is another reference to someone who has a demon. When a demon dwells inside of a person, this is a phenomena we find in the New Testament that we don't find in the Old Testament. It's not recorded very much. There's a few instances where you have an evil spirit coming and, and torturing someone, like with Saul in the Old Testament. But it really seems to become more common as we get to the New Testament times. And the casting out of a demon was something that was actually a Jewish practice. We find out in other parts of the Gospels that the Jewish people, they had practices by which they would cast out demons. And they believed that this was wisdom that had been passed down to them from Solomon. You can read in some of the Jewish writings from this time in the Talmud and other sources about how Solomon had wisdom and discovered how to cast out demons and had handed these down and the Jewish people had practices by which they would do this. But when Jesus confronts the demon here, who is inside of this man, Jesus does not follow any of the practices of the Jewish people that were common at this time. He doesn't have any technique. He doesn't have any spells. He doesn't have any incantation. Nothing along those lines. He just tells the demon, be gone, and the demon has to go. And this is what amazes the people. It's not that they'd never heard of exorcisms before. They had. But they'd never seen anyone do it the way that Jesus Christ did it, with his authority. He didn't call upon God's authority. He didn't call upon Moses' authority. He didn't use any scripture or anything like that. He didn't ask for the demon's name so he would somehow gain power over the demon or anything like that. He just said, be gone, and poof, the demon was gone. And the demons were shrieking in fear. When they came into the presence of Jesus Christ, look at it. It says, there was a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. He was shrieking. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, I think normally demons would probably be a little bit more quiet in the synagogue service. when it draws so much attention to themselves. But here, this demon can't help himself. And he is just terrified and he's screaming about Jesus being in their presence. Now, if you look at the words of the demon, they're very interesting. Again, now, the demon is separate from the person. Here, the, the demon is basically speaking what the demon wants, and Jesus addresses the demon, and the person, his personality is kind of like in the background, like he's been kind of put on the sideline in his own body, and the demon is running things until he's cast out, and then the man kind of gets back control of himself. And you find this throughout Scripture when you have a person who has a demon, it's very similar to what is recorded here, although there is some variety. And as he's saying, what have you to do with us? This is a common Jewish phrase saying that we really shouldn't have anything to do with each other. 
that you shouldn't be bothering me, I should have nothing to do with you, what are you doing here, is kind of the question. And so he recognizes that perhaps Jesus has come to destroy us. And then you have to ask yourself, who's the us, right? Is he talking about himself and his fellow demons, that Jesus has come to destroy them? Or is he speaking on behalf of the fallen world in general, including the fallen people that these demons are inhabiting and in control of, that they might be saying that Jesus Christ has come to destroy all the wicked, not just the demons, but also wicked people. So we don't know exactly who he means by us, but I think that what you have clearly in Scripture is that Jesus Christ has invaded the domain of darkness. The light has come into the world, and the darkness doesn't know what to do. The darkness is panicking. The darkness is full of fear. They don't know what God's plan is. They don't know what he's going to do. And just as John the Baptist, when he was preaching about the coming of Jesus Christ, talked about how the, the axe was already laid at the root of the tree, and that this coming one who was so mighty was going to baptize the world with fire, the fire of judgment, I think a lot of the demons, they didn't understand that Jesus had come to seek and save the lost. And that he was here not to destroy the wicked, but he was here to save those who were going to be believing in him with repentance. And so the demon, he can't imagine that Jesus Christ is there to save the world. He's just full of his own fears that Jesus Christ is there to destroy the wicked, which would include himself, but would also include wicked people. That's how I read it. And when he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, this is an interesting statement from the demon. What exactly is the demon trying to accomplish by identifying Jesus Christ as the Holy One of God. When we think about the Holy One of God and the demon's recognition of that truth, it reminded me of what James wrote, the brother of Jesus, not James the son of Zebedee, but James the son of Joseph. James wrote, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the demons, they know all about God. They know all about Jesus Christ. They have right views, but they don't have a right heart. You see that, that James and all the scripture makes it clear that just knowing the truth about God is not the same thing as having a right heart towards God. What does it mean to believe in God? Well, the demons, they believe in God in one sense, right? They believe that God exists. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They recognize him as the Holy One of God. That's a kind of faith. But James makes it clear that's not a saving faith. The demons aren't somehow redeemed by believing that God is who he is and that Jesus is God's son. No, that saving faith is a heart of repentance, as Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and it's a trust in God. The demons didn't trust God. They didn't follow God. They weren't submitting themselves to God's will. They were in rebellion and hostility towards God. And so saving faith isn't just believing true things about God, but it's having that right heart before God where you actually trust him like you trust a person. Like, I trust you, Jerry. I trust you that you're going to tell me the truth. I trust you that you're going to do what's right by the church. I, I have this relationship where I trust you, and if you give me advice, I'm going to listen to you. Well, how much more do we trust God? that he's going to do what's right, that when he gives us advice, that we're going to do what he tells us to do. That's the kind of faith that we're looking for here and that the demons don't have. They don't have that kind of faith, but they do have a recognition of who Jesus Christ is as the Holy One of God. Now, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God? We find the same confession on the lips of Peter in John's Gospel, in John chapter 6, verse 69, 
after Jesus has spoken some very difficult words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which apply to the Lord's table that we'll be having at the end of our service, many of the disciples leave because they just can't handle the things that Jesus is saying. They're too offensive. And Jesus turns to his disciples, the twelve, and he says, are you going to leave also? And Peter speaks up for the group and he says, where else can we go? You have the words of life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the Holy One of God is the Messiah. The Holy One of God is the one whom God had been promising who was going to come and and judge the world in righteousness and save the world. And so here the demon recognizes Jesus as the one that God had promised, the Holy One. This Holy One of God was also referenced in this book of Psalms. This became a well-known messianic psalm in reference to the Messiah where the psalmist wrote, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The Holy One will not see corruption in the grave. And so Jesus is that Holy One of God who will not stay in the grave but who will rise to everlasting life. The demons know this. They know who he is. They don't know everything about God's plan. They're terrified out of their minds, and they must do what Jesus says. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And you know what? He did. He stopped talking. All he could do was cry out. All he could do was convulse. And he came out, and everyone was astonished and amazed. This is the first miracle that Mark records. And Mark seems to take a special interest in the power of Jesus to command demons. That this is a miracle that he'll come back to in a number of occasions. Not this one in particular, but this type of miracle, the casting out of demons. And in fact, he'll even characterize the ministry of Jesus there in verse 39. Take a look at Mark chapter 1, verse 39. When he gives a summary statement, he makes sure to include the casting out of demons. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. Now I could do a whole message on demonology, casting out demons, what our role with demons in the world today is, how we're supposed to follow Jesus' example or not follow Jesus' example and all that. But that's not my purpose. My purpose is to preach Mark chapter 1. And I have taught on demonology before. And if you have questions, I'm happy to answer questions on that subject. But we're going to talk about following Jesus not only in the casting out of demons, but more specifically in his teaching ministry. That's what we're going to focus on. Now, the second miracle that we have here in the scriptures, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, for Jesus, is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in verses 29 and 30, and verse 31. So let's read those verses. Mark 1, verses 29 through 31. And immediately... He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So Simon's house, well, we looked at an aerial shot of that earlier, but here's a, a close-up of a church, a Byzantine church, that was built on the site in Capernaum. There you see the Sea of Galilee back there. It's not far from the coasts of the lake. We're pretty confident that this is the site where Peter's house was in Capernaum. Now, Jesus didn't own a house of his own, but it looks like he kind of moved in with Peter and Andrew 
And their house was a part of a complex of houses that were underneath this church. The, the ruins are there. And the complex of houses all had a courtyard inside. So you'd go in a gate into the courtyard, and then from that courtyard, which was a common area where they'd have grills and where you'd clean your fish and things like that, then, then you'd, you'd have different doors that went into different apartments, you know, houses that were in a circle around it. And so this was one of those houses. And it was probably the type of thing where you'd have you know, extended family living in the houses around you. And so whether Peter's mother-in-law was in that house or the house next to it or, or how it all worked exactly, we're not sure. But it's cool to have the site and to be able to even find some of the graffiti that was written on the walls of this house that later became this church and that early church tradition identified as Peter's dwelling in Capernaum. And it seemed to be turned into a church at a pretty early date. Now, this church is later that we have the ruins of, all right, building on top of building. But if you go down to the, the actual walls of Peter's house, they're still there. And they've been plastered over, which was rare in those days. And so it was shown that it was you know, going to be used for a special purpose. And so it seems like at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century, Peter's house in Capernaum got turned into a very early church meeting place of sorts. There's scratchings on those plaster walls about the Lord Jesus Christ and, and prayers to him and things like that. So very interesting. Now, as they come to Peter's house, they find Simon's mother-in-law in bed with a, a bad fever, and she's not able to get up. And you know, normally you're coming home from synagogue on Sabbath on the Saturday, and you'd have a meal in your house, but the mother's not able to do anything with the meal, and they're worried about her because she's got a pretty bad fever, and so they tell Jesus, and Jesus immediately heals her. He just takes her by the hand, lifts her up, rebukes the fever, or as we're told in the Gospel of Luke, and she's immediately made well. And she's ready to work. It's not like, you know, when you get over a fever and you're still weak and it's like, well, I still need to rest. No, there was none of that. She didn't have to rest. She wasn't still feeling weak after her sickness, but it was like she'd never had it. And she was ready to make dinner and they could sit down and enjoy meals together. Now, as they enjoyed their meal together, then it came that at evening, what could happen then is that everybody who saw what Jesus did in the synagogue, word has gotten around to all of Capernaum, and they're like, hey, there's a miracle worker in town. We saw him cast this demon out that no one has ever done anything like this. And so people are excited, and we see what happens then in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. They were all crowding the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So you can picture it, right? There's this main door, and whether they've all come into the courtyard or whether they're all outside the main door. And, and then at sundown, that's when the Sabbath technically ends. And so that's when you can start carrying burdens again. And so if you've got somebody who's sick and you need to carry them, all right, sundown, Sabbath is over, let's go. We know where Jesus is at and let's get some healing. And so Jesus healed many that night. And I'm sure the night went on very long because the whole town was showing up at his door. But notice what Jesus' response is in verses 35 to 39. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
So after a big day, after a late night, he's up before sunrise, and he goes out to a lonely place outside of town, and he's praying. And then Simon, he wakes up probably around dawn, right? Because people wake up at dawn, and they, they go to bed at a normal hour, not staying up late like we do now. And Simon and those who are with him, they're searching for Jesus. Where did he go? Anybody, did, did he tell you? Where, where is he? And they're looking all over for him. They're looking around town. They're looking outside of town. They're hunting for Jesus. This word for searching is a strong word. They're hunting him down. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. What are you doing out here by yourself? You know, we made a big splash in town yesterday. You're the big buzz. You're famous now. Uh, What are you doing out here? Is kind of their attitude. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus was ready to heal. He was ready to cast out demons. He was a compassionate man, and if you had a problem and he had the power to help, he was going to help you. But that's not where his heart was. He didn't come to earth to heal our boo-boos. He came to earth to teach us the truth about God. That's what his mission was. That's what he was passionate about. And the miracles that he did, they were to get people's attention and to say, hey, you need to listen to what this guy is saying. But unfortunately, that was not most people's response. Most people, they were amazed at his teaching, but they didn't do what he was saying. They enjoyed listening to him, and most of all, they enjoyed being healed and being fed and having their needs taken care of, but they weren't really wanting to change their life. They weren't really wanting to do the things that Jesus Christ was teaching them, how to live, how to think. And it was very revolutionary what he was teaching. But there were some, there was a few, who were interested in the words of Jesus Christ. Where else can we go, Peter said? You have the words of eternal life. And so you have to ask yourself, what are you seeking? Why are you here? Are you seeking a buzz? Are you seeking excitement? Are you seeking for health? Are you seeking for wealth? Are you seeking for entertainment? What are you seeking Are you seeking the words of life? Are they more valuable and more precious to you than your health? You know, people will do just about anything to be healthy. I've never been that sick. But when you see how desperate people can get for healing, they'll travel around the world. They'll spend their last dime. They'll do anything to feel better. Will you do that in pursuit of the truth? the word of life? Would you sell your house? Would you travel across the globe? Would you go anywhere and do anything and give up anything in order to hear the words of life so that you can do them and be blessed? That is why Jesus came. That's what we really need to be listening to. That's what we need to be paying attention to. Jesus says, this is the reason why I came out. And there's a little bit of ambiguity in that. Does he mean that's why he came out from the city of Capernaum, which would be the immediate context? Or is he speaking more cryptically and saying, that's why I came from the Father. That's why I've come into the world, is to teach. And I think the latter is more accurate. While there might be a little bit of ambiguity there on purpose, the main point that Jesus here is making is that he's come into the world in order to preach and teach. And that's what he did. In verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, 
preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. Now we'll save verses 40 through 45 for next week where he cleanses a leper. And that's a remarkable story. So I don't want to rush that one here at the end of our service today. But instead I want to take time to be able to observe the Lord's table. So let us move from Mark chapter 1. And instead, turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. 